Hey, this is Doug Schaefer back with another episode of The Taste. Thanks very much for checking out this latest podcast. We've got a really special one for you today. Our guest is Robin Lale of Lale Vineyards. Robin's family goes back 140 years here in the valley, starting with a character named Gustav Niebaum, a fur trader who built a great winery here called Inglenook. Her story goes on to include her father, John Daniel, a founder of Napa Valley's modern era, and other names you'll recognize, such as Robert Mondavi and Bill Harlan of Harlan Estate and Meadowood Resort. We have a lot to cover today, so let's meet Robin and get started. So, here we are. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Taste. Uh, I'm Doug Schaefer, and we have a special guest today, um, Robin Lale, a true, original, longtime Napa Valley natives. Not too many Napa Valley natives around here. Um, she and I, we've seen each other for years, coming in and going. She, at various Napa Valley events, she knew my mom, Bet. She was a dear friend of my dad, John Schaefer, knows my sister, Runs, hangs with my wife, Annette. Robin, welcome to The Taste. Thank you very much. It's and great I, to be here. It's super to have you in. And I know for sure that you do not know the first time that our paths crossed. I um, do not. They, I, I'll tell you why, because <laughs> it was 1979, and I was had a summer job at as a tour guide at Robert Mondavi Winery. Oh, that's and amazing. You were working there. Yes, it was. <laughs> so we never actually spoke to each other, but... I saw you going back and forth to Bob's office, and I was out there in the front of the building welcoming guests. It was pretty funny. Making people happy. <laughs> well, trying. We, yeah. we had to do, that, was, that was one of the best jobs I've ever had. Um, so that was the summer of 79. And, you know, we tried to do a little research on folks that come in, and your story is, is, goes on forever. I mean, back to the 1800s with one of the best-known names in that era, Gustav Niebaum. Then we get into one of the greatest winemakers in the valley, your dad, John Daniel. Then your story, working with Mondavi, working with Bill Harlan, starting your own winery. It goes on and on. So this we could be here all day long. I'll speak very rapidly. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I, I got to tell you something. We were doing some research, and um, but I do want to read this, what we found. This was uh, an article in the August 14th, 1908 Napa Weekly Journal, the local newspaper, and it was about Gustav Niebaum's uh, passing and his estate, Niebaum's estate, valued in the neighborhood of $2.5 million, bulk of which is left to, to widow. And I quote, the San Francisco call on, of Sunday morning says that at the request of the widow, the will of the late Captain Gus, Gustav Niebaum, who died in San Francisco last week, will not be open until the end of next week. The estate is value, valued in the neighborhood of $2.5 million. It's the understanding of those who enjoy the confidence of the captain that the bulk of the property is left to Mrs. Niebaum. Although the couple had no children, they took into their home and raised from babyhood a niece and nephew who had been left orphans by the death of their parents, Mr. and Mrs. Shingleberry, Shingleburger. Captain Niebaum and his wife were greatly attached to the two children and brought them up with the same care and devotion as though they had been their own. The captain was greatly displeased. This is great. The captain was greatly displeased with the marriages and family differences followed. Don't you love that? The girl, <laughs> the girl became the wife of John Daniels, John Daniels Sr., a young businessman, and her brother married an, and her brother married an actress. Shocking. Again, 1908, <laughs> shocking news. Today it would be fantastic. Um, <laughs> 
It's like Prince Harry. Anyway, following the fire of 1906, a reconciliation was effected between Mrs. Daniels and Captain Niebaum, and her husband came to enjoy his highest, his highest esteem. Young Shingleburger never regained his... <laughs> young Shingleburger, the one who married the actress, never regained his, his, his place in the affections of the captain. I love the way they get into the family stuff. Uh, the children were the son and daughter of, Mr., of Mrs. Niebaum's brother, and despite the attitude of the captain, she continued in her devotion of them. It is believed that she will make ample provision for both. So this is 1908. So I've got to ask you, you've got to tell me about Gustav, Gustav Niebaum. Well, you know, I didn't know him personally. (laughs) 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 You would need so much face work if that were the case. Well, Captain Gustav Niebaum um, was my great-granduncle and um, was larger than life. Hmm. He definitely was. He was just one of those individuals. He was a man who was a sea captain. He was a man who had a lifelong love affair with the sea. He was a man who had an affair, lifelong love affair with Alaska. He was a man who fell in love with wine and started a winery in Napa Valley in 1879 called Inglenook. He was a man who um, spoke five languages fluently and had a working knowledge of two more. He was a man who collected the largest wine library in the world and read every volume in the library, which were written in multiple languages. He didn't need to do that, but he did. He was a man who was the Russian vice consul to San Francisco. The consul was kind of a lazy guy, apparently, and so he was acting, actually acting consul. He was a man who probably was in the court of Nicholas and Alexandra when they were still in power in Russia. Russia. He was a man of... uh, who was reclusive but loved to um, entertain his friends in a very grand way. He was a man of great excellence. He was a man who followed Louis Pasteur and was very particular about the cleanliness of his winery and um, did white kid glove inspection tours when he was on property, (laughs) which was... Stunning to people. He was a man who tried to find a cure for phylloxera when it hit the vineyards hmm. of Napa Valley in the 1880s, late 1880s and 90s. Um, he did not just uh, fold up his hands and assume the lily position. He went after it avidly, working with all kinds of different people from all kinds of areas, including Europe, um, to try and find a solution, which he was not able to find. He was a great collector. Um, He had beautiful Flemish glass from the 17th century and um, collections of... There there is a Russian tea set that he has that is extraordinarily beautiful that was inlaid with all different colors of enamel. He was a man who um, wasn't a sharer guy. He didn't like to share. So, you know, the vintners in Napa Valley, even at that time, were sharing a lot of information. Not so, not so for him. He was a man who built a brand out of nothing and there were no brands at the time. And he was a man who started selling his wine on a worldwide basis in the late 1800s. He was spectacular. Wow. How did so? He's a sea captain. He's he's traveling around the world. 
How did he find Napa Valley? Well, he began from very humble origins. By the time he came down to San Francisco, he had a small fortune of $600,000, which he invested in a company called the Alaska Commercial Company. So that company took him all over the world. But in the meantime, he was living in San Francisco and okay. used to go to visit friends in Napa Valley. During his tenure at the Alaska Commercial Company, he spent a lot of time in the great winemaking regions of Europe Okay. and developed a second lifelong love affair, and that was with wine. With wine. And because this is in the late 1800s, right? Well, not so late. Not, not so, so late. Still we're in the 1870s. Got it. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so somehow he found his way up to Napa Valley. And yes, as a guest and, and a loved guest it. And loved it. And obviously bought, he bought a big, beautiful piece of land in Rutherford. Well, it started out with a modest piece of land, okay. which he just added to and added to <laughs> until it was 1,830 acres. Wow, 1,830 acres. Oh. Well, it was a determined individual. <laughs> <laughs> and then, but, um, and so when he, then he built, he built the estate, the Inglenook Winery, correct? And he what, did. And what year was that? Um, the winery was finished in 1883. Okay. That's a beautiful building to this day. It is indeed. And he started making wine. Do you know what kind of wines he was making? All kinds of wines. Okay. So you know very well, Doug, that um, even after the repeal of Prohibition and the few wineries that opened and then slowly grew to more and more more businesses, that, that the vintners were making huge numbers of wines. Right. So all kinds of things that you wouldn't expect, including Rieslings and Gewurztraminers mm-hmm. and you name it, and they were making it. And so Niebaum was not so different. And I don't know if you know, but by the time the first commercial winery was Charles Krug in 1861, and by the late 1880s, there were, and I'm sorry, I can't give you a specific number, between it, 120 it and was, 200 wineries. Right, it wineries was close, close to 200, I didn't know that. Making yeah. wine here in Napa Valley. And in 1889, 27 wineries from uh, Napa Valley went to the Paris Exposition and showed their wines and won um, gold medals and silver medals. And Inglenook won, in addition to that, a certificate of excellence. So there was there yeah. was a lot going on here. The wines that were being made were beautiful. But, you know, Inglenook was the first winery, for instance, to develop a brand. Right. Because so many wineries at that time were shipping wines to Negociants in San Francisco and the negociants were then creating blends from all over all California over, right. and, and then sending them across the country or around the Cape, unrefrigerated. Very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> so Niebaum was quite an innovator. You know, he was a man who pioneered double sorting. He pioneered meter-by-meter um, meter planting. If hmm. you go to Opus today, my darling friends at Opus, they will tell you they pioneered meter but not true. no. No, it was Niebaum. He did it. He did it. And it was, of course, trying to reproduce what he had seen in Bordeaux, you know, right. the great producer. So. Well, this, you know, we need to get this story out because everyone thinks, you know, Napa Valley in California has just all happened in the, you know, Absolutely. recent 60, you know, the last 40 years. It's been the last 180 years. So we it's, need to we It's need to really amazing. Uh, you know, my family's been making wine here in the Valley for 140 years. Wow. 
So that's pretty exciting. And you know those those roots down into the past give the cachet or the um, position of wines coming from this area um, greater depth and meaning, I think, you know, because it's not just a Johnny Come Lately kind of thing. Oh, yes, let's let's go to Napa Valley and make wine. And not only that, in terms of the Napa Valley Appalachian and its fame today, mm-hmm. that's built on over well over 150 years of effort. And um, it's kind of a sad thing when people come here and um, have no understanding of that. Because they're missing something really special. That's part of the reason I do this podcast. I've had some f- folks in here have, like yourself, you know, family ties going back 80, 100 years making wine. And it's great. It is great. And it's, it's exciting. We posted something the other day because it had been 40 years since I went to high school here, you know, in St. Helena. And... Uh, the, my, the photo was out here, right here at the at the ranch, and the background is the the mountains of Stag's Leap. And it's like, oh, and this, you know, I was 17 years old, but I'm looking at the, the mountains of Stag's Leap, and it's like, wow, they still look the same. And then I thought a little later, it's like, wow, those things have looked the same for hundreds of years and 150 years of people growing grapes here, making wine. Right. You know, we have a short time on earth, and we come and go, and... Our grapes and wines, they last so many years, but you know, this place and the surrounding mountains and, and topography. And the just, soul. And the soul. And the soul. Yeah, yeah. Just maintain and carry on. And it's it's a little overwhelming sometimes when we think about it, but, but also kind of comforting. It's nice to know. It's a great place. It is. So Gustav and Suzanne, according to the newspaper, had no children. But uh, there was a, her niece and nephew, the Shingleburgers. Mm-hmm. So they took them in, a son and a daughter. Mm-hmm. And the daughter mar- grew up and married John Daniel Sr. Do I, that, I have that right? No, you're absolutely right. It was, this, I had to do some studying here. It was kind of complicated. <laughs> John Daniel Sr. married Leah Shingleburger. Leah Shingleburg, thank you. And then they had a child, a boy named John Daniel Jr., mm-hmm. who is your father. Right, and a daughter named Suzanne Daniel. So your dad was born when, 19... 1907. 1907. Mm-hmm. And he grew up here. So he, did he, he grew up he at He did the, not, actually. Okay, sorry. So oddly enough, um, history repeated itself. And so Leah Daniel died when my father was seven years old. Oh, wow. She contracted diphtheria, and it's said that she died of a broken heart. Hmm. Because John Daniel Sr. Um, was a bit of a philanderer, unfortunately. And um, Captain Niebaum and Susan Niebaum looked at this situation, came to John Daniel Sr. and said, You, sir, are not fit to raise these children. Hmm. We will raise the children. And John Daniel Sr. might have been a philanderer and probably was. However, he wasn't a fool. And so he said, Well, very well, you can do that, but if you do it, you must agree to leave all your holdings to um, the children, John Daniel and Suzanne Daniel. Wow. And they agreed to do so. So um, so Gustav and his wife raised 
Yes. Raised your father. So they raised my father's mother and they raised my father. So what happened was that dad was raised both in San Francisco and at the ranch. Okay. <clears throat> so Got yes, it. he was here from the time he was a boy, but... Um, and I have some really killer darling pictures of huh. he and Suzanne, you know, when they were little in the pony cart and sure. at the ranch. Fascinating. So he grew up, so okay, as he, so what was his childhood like? He was in the city in San Francisco and up here. So my dad, my dad, um, I found one of his, <laughs> this is a good pertinent to nothing. I found one of his um, diaries okay. up in the attic. Oh, neat. And it was written at the time he was seven years old. And every every night it said, wrestled with Ned Spaulding. <laughs> so I think he was working a few things out at that time. And um, the thing that's a bit touching is that when my father passed away in 1970, um, I received a letter from Ned Spaulding, who I had never laid eyes on. Mm -hmm. And it killed me. And I wrote back to him and said, wrestled with Ned Spaulding. Yeah, it was a lovely oh, thing. Wow. So um, dad went to private schools. Okay. He went to Potter High. Um, and he played a little football while he was at Potter High. And in the summer times, he worked at the ranch in the vineyards. And um, so, you know, it was um, learning by touch and feel sure. at the beginning. And he had, because of his growing up there, had this great passion for this beautiful property and also for the legacy that he came from. So that's where, okay, so he grew up in the vineyards in the summer. Was he working in the winery too, you think, or just mostly? No, he wasn't working in the winery because it was prohibition. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. What happened with Ingle, Ingle Nook during prohibition? So you know, I'm sure quite well that there were, that everybody closed with the exception right. of two producers. One was Behringer. Okay. And one was Beaulieu, now called BV. Mm -hmm. And Ingle Nook continued to keep their vineyards in pristine condition and sold grapes to um, Beaulieu. Okay. So that's what happened during Prohibition, Prohibition. in Inglenook. And I think you know also that in 1939, it became apparent that Prohibition was going to come to an end. Right. And so several vintners, not many, but several vintners made a 1939 vintage. Okay. At that point, I think, was he, was, was he working at, was he making wine at that point? Your dad? My dad was sent by his father to uh, reopen Inglenook okay. at the end of Prohibition. So in, um, he he went there. You know, Prohibition just landed, sorry, lasted for 13 years. Correct. And um, there was a vintage made that year, which was in 1933, excuse me, not 1939. And he was, and, and he at that point, did he, he was the owner because he inherited it? He was point? not the owner. Susan, Susan okay. Nibam was still oh, his, living, his and she okay. died in 1936, at okay. which point he became the owner, but wasn't the manager um, until 1939. Okay. So he was sent there and then immediately became an apprentice. So he, you know, all the time learned the hard way. He was only 26 years old. So... Carl Bunchu was the winemaker okay. when the winery opened. And, you know, the Bunchus still Bunch. are going today, which right. is very exciting. And Carl Bunchu was the prototype of the winemaker. He had okay. very, very fat cheeks and a giant bulbous nose and some hair. And 
And there was so much intensity in his face. It was absolutely fabulous. He was just brilliant, and he made beautiful wines, really exciting wines. And I don't know exactly when George Dewar took over okay. for Carl Bunchu. I think it was probably in the late um, 30s. And then George Dewar was the winemaker until the winery was sold. And then for some time after that, and what's really tragic is that George Dewar eventually had a nervous breakdown mm. and uh, burned all of his winemaking notes. Oh, oh. So no one knows how these wines from Inglenook, which have such longevity, right? They just They're um, gorgeous wines. just poured a 1959 Cabernet Sauvignon the other night that was spectacular, just <sighs> beautiful. Oh. So, a sad story. A sad story, yeah, yes. Yeah, but but beautiful wines. And so your dad but so your dad owned it Inglenook and ran it for for all those years. He, he did. Was, he was he did major. for 30 years, yeah. Got it. And then and at some point he married and you and your sister came along and you grew up where'd you grow up? Um Inglenook. Inglenook. Yes. Right there. Uh, my sister started out in San Francisco but um, Inglenook in, in the interim periods. Right. And I was born and at Inglenook from three days after I was born. Wow. So What was that like? It was magical. It was magical. It was so magical. So, so beautiful and so rural and so... I, I can't even begin. It was like Eden. Mm-hmm. And... To be honest with you, as a child, perhaps I didn't appreciate it to the same level. I can remember when we used to travel, mother and dad would come home and wax eloquently about, oh, it's Betty, oh, John, it's so beautiful, isn't it so beautiful? And I would look at them and think to myself, well, you know, it's, yes, it's very attractive, but there's no mountains and there's no ocean. So how beautiful is it? <laughs> and of course, as you begin to age and grow older in this place, the beauty just absolutely is mesmerizing. It is. It's just breathtaking. So, but it was a happy place to grow up. I had a pony and then I had mm -hmm. a horse and um, a wonderful dog. It was a little isolated, honestly, right. um, because it seemed like for my mother, it was a very long way <laughs> for play dates and so forth. So, mm -hmm. It was a place of the heart, and it was days in the mountain and on the mountain, and days finding secret places and getting the eggs from the chicken coop and raising a calf for 4 H and all those wonderful kind of rural things, and just investigating every part of that property. And <clears throat> when I was quite young, my mother left for, oh, let's see. She left when I was around three and mm. divorced my dad and remarried and then divorced that man and came back <clears throat> and remarried my dad in, um, when I was seven. And the period she was gone, we used to um, have picnics on the weekends. We oh. had a Chinese cook named Charlie who was such a pal. And um, Charlie made fabulous lunches, these really thinly <laughs> sliced French bread sandwiches with, with roast oh. beef and ham and yeah. tuna and peanut butter and jelly, huge yeah. platters of them. So we would have these picnics on Navelle Creek, and, um, which was 
there was a stand of redwoods, and it was above a dam that we had on the property. Mm-hmm. And it was, that was magical. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can remember, those are just kind of snippets that come to you from your childhood. I can remember these hampers full of, of these wonderful, nice. yummy foods. And then um, wine, obviously, for the grown-ups. And um, I can remember that... After the lunch was over, the grown-ups would spread these big blankets and they would <laughs> lie down and be chatting and then kind of have a little snooze. Make a little snooze. <laughs> we call that a but siesta. But it was, um, it was, I don't know how to really encapsulate it well. You just did. It's beautiful. And you know, just the other thing, Doug, is that I was playing in the vineyards. So that was marvelous. And yeah. the vineyards for me were magical throughout the season, so um, wonderful in the winter mm-hmm. and when the mustard would start to grow and then just become this wonderful carpet in the, in the early spring. And I can remember hiding in the mustard sure. because it was so yeah. tall and looking up at the clouds and making, making stories. And then, you know, spring would come along and then the magic of the vines starting to bud and then bloom and that I just loved it. And we had I had a treehouse that was over branched over the vineyard in okay. one place. And it there was an Indian mound, burial mound in that part of the vineyard. And so when they would till then in the spring, I would go out and look at, you know, for arrowheads and so forth. But then, you know, then the grapes would start growing. And then they would turn color, and yeah. then I would try to eat them, and they were so nasty, <laughs> teeny and filled with seeds and so sharp. <laughs> yeah, unripe grapes are tough. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but then, and then the great crescendo, which was harvest, and the wonderful excitement of these grapes being harvested and taken to the winery, and then this fabulous perfume. Yes. That would come from the winery. It just because you lived just, right. You lived right there, right? Well, Your we li- we was, lived right behind it. Yeah. Yes, and so that was ecstasy. It really was, and the vines going to sleep. It was a whole it's show the, the whole every year. year. It was all, this fabulous scene. Yeah, so it was wonderful. Loved it. Thank you for that. That was just beautiful. That's great. So the folks had some wine. Were you did uh, did Dad ever give you a little little glass of wine or water and wine, anything like that? So no. Mm-hmm. There was wine on the table every night when my mother came home. Honestly, Doug, I think perhaps she felt a bit guilty for her excursion, sure. and so she announced pretty much upon arrival that she was going to raise my sister and I in the Mormon Church. Okay. It's a fine religion, mm-hmm. um, which does not embrace wine in any way. And <clears throat> so my father, from the time I was old enough to comprehend what he was saying to me, used to say, I see myself as the caretaker of this legacy, of hmm. this heritage, of this land, and it will all be yours one day. And it's a dangerous thing to say to a mm. child because things happen things happen. They can happen. Maybe it rolls out as planned and everyone lives happily ever after. Um, In this instance, my mother happened and that was the end. And so 
wine on the table. We were allowed to smell it, but not to taste it. I remember the first time I ever went, and we, and we did, what, what a trash, yeah. talk about something sad. So we never talked about the wine business. And hmm. my dad was such an amazing contributor to the business and so involved up to his armpits, oh, you know, was, just he, he was, he, heart he and was soul. One of the, he was one of the key guys. To well, the there were only, what, 10 wineries? Yeah. Re- nine, sorry, nine wineries that reopened after yeah. Prohibition out of this 200-odd that were extant before the turn of the century. Mm. So he, you know, was Robert Mondavi's mentor, and mm-hmm. those two guys shared the vision that Napa Valley could make wine second to none in the world. And as we know today so well, Robert Mondavi just continued to pursue that and did so with great excellence and great effectiveness and was so important in the building of of the magic of the Napa Valley appellation worldwide. Yes, he was. But your dad was his mentor. He was his mentor. So no, no tasting wine. Yeah. And the first tasting I ever went to with my dad, I was at Stanford. And um, my dad had gone to Stanford and my sister as well. And mm-hmm. so he came down and picked me up and I said, Dad, <laughs> what do I do if the wine just tastes awful? And he said, this is what you do. He said, you look at the wine, you hold the glass up, you smell the wine, then you taste it. And then you look into the eyes of the person standing around the, across the table and you pause for a moment and then you say, this wine is really interesting. <laughs> it, it worked then and it works now. It works now. And I, I must tell you that when people tell me my wine is interesting, I tend to become inflamed. <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> so you're at Stanford. For, so, well, you know, you're out, out of the house, Stanford. Were you, were you drinking beer? Drinking wine? Yes, sir. Yeah, yes, okay, sir. Okay, good. So I drank beer and <laughs> I drank a lot of gin, actually, when I was in college. I don't touch a drop of it. <laughs> gin, yeah, Today, gin, yeah, gin, gin is gin, out. Gin's not good. Yeah. No, no, it's yeah. very bad. <laughs> you, you and I have the same genetic makeup on that one. <laughs> so Stanford, um, and uh, anything fun in college, sports? major activities? Oh, I played just, tennis for Stanford. Okay, and um, And actually, uh, I had this professor at Stanford who used to say, his name was Watkins, and he used to say in his lectures, without fail, every single day that you were in his class, you people, that was all, all of us students on the other side, you people don't get it. You have no idea the value of what you're what you're in right now. You you won't get it for years. And we all used to look at him and think, of course we get it. Well, um, when I graduated or I was meant to graduate, it was the week after grades were coming out, and I got a call from a professor of a graduate seminar that I had taken. And he said, Miss Daniel, he was Yugoslavian, Miss Daniel, I would like to take you to lunch at the faculty club. Hmm. I had not been a stu- I had been more of a, let's say, socially active. And I don't mean ridiculously, but I sat Just... on a couple of committees and I was not um, comfortable in the company of professors. I did not seek their company. Mm-hmm. Um, I studied hard and did well, but you know. Right. 
So this seminar, though, was a disaster <laughs> because the, the professor had escaped from Yugoslavia during a revolution, the revolution of the mm -hmm. time. And I felt so terrible for him that when I would go to see him during his office hours, I would cry. <laughs> and so now he's called and invited me to lunch, and I think that's it. I flunked, I flunked the seminar, yeah. and I'm not going to graduate. Right. So we go to lunch, and it goes on and on and on, and I am tongue-tied. Not good at making small talk mm -hmm. at the time. And so he holds the conversation, and finally dessert comes. And he said, you know, Miss Daniel, um, during the course of the seminar, I thought you were hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> he said, but Miss Daniel, the paper you wrote was brilliant. Hmm. And I am going to put it in the Hoover Institute. And wow. Miss Daniel, I strongly urge you to continue your education, go to graduate school, Get a PhD because the things that you write will be of great value. And Professor Watkins was so correct. I was so dumbfounded. Wow. Dumbfounded. And, you know, I already had the plans of what yeah. I was going to do. So yeah. basically it was too late. It was too late in that particular genre. And yes, I, yes, I did miss it. Yes, I did. Dang it. Yeah. So, you know, we all have these... Um, Maybe not many, but these paths not taken. Mm -hmm. um, an another one for me was that very summer I had um, my father's distributor had gotten me a job working as American concierge in Ilham's department store in um, Copenhagen, and I didn't take the job. Um, and, you know, th those kinds of jobs were not available at the time. Right. You just couldn't go do things like that. So it was really extraordinary opportunity. And my beau had decided to stay in, in San Francisco, and I stayed home to see my beau. And well, so, you know, those, those kinds of paths, every once in a while, not on a daily basis, thank <laughs> goodness, but every once in a while, they pop into your mind. And, and there is a moment of saying, I wonder what would have happened. Oh, mm -hmm. sure. We all have that. Yeah. We all have that. But then you have to look at the reality and the path you did take. Yes, hubba and, hubba, <laughs> and, and find and, and find the joyous moments, and there's a lot. Yes, and, that's and, um, absolutely but true. I'm, yeah, but I'm with you. It's kind of fun to wonder, wonder sometimes. Well, you have no idea, so it you doesn't last long. <laughs> well, yeah. Plus, what, you're you're going to make this beautiful dream, where the reality goes, maybe that wouldn't happen at all. <laughs> that's exactly right. Uh, so, so you're staying. In, you graduate. You're staying in San Francisco with your guy. Was that was that John? No. Oh, it's another no. guy. Okay, another we'll, guy. we'll get to John later. But um, you mentioned earlier, some things don't always happen the way they're promised. And in '64, your dad told Engel, "Look." Yes, he did. That must. What was that like? So, I was working um, at the Bank of America mm -hmm. at the time, and I remember getting the call, and I remember the sense of death. Hmm. that hit me, that was so overpowering, the death of this legacy, which even then was unique. I mean, it was something sure. quite special for the business, I think, not just not just Robin, you mm -hmm. know, no, but for a much bigger circle than that. And so I was yeah. devastated. And you know, Doug, I'm writing a... Uh, or 
glacially writing a book. Oh, great. Good. <laughs> and um, which is really, it's a memoir, and it's such an interesting experience. I mean, you you have played in this field very successfully yourself with your book about your dad. and um, But I, I wonder if you, during that period of time that you were writing, had epiphanies about things that had happened during the course of of your growing up in your life. And I certainly have had them in mm -hmm. this instance. And one of these epiphanies was not very pretty. And it was, Dad, you know, why didn't you just mm. go to Mother and say, look, Betty, this is not an appropriate decision for you as to the future of these girls and why don't we ask them if they would be interested in carrying on here? You know, maybe not drinking. I mean, you know, there could have been right. a dozen ways to put it together, but it never happened. Mm. And it was just sold. And another person that was quite devastated when he found out was Bob Mondavi. And that was before Robert Mondavi was, got built. So he was still at Charles Krug. Probably. No, he no, was. He, oh, I he think was, he, he had on, been ousted been by ousted. that point in time. Okay, so... And he's, oh, wow. he was so devastated and he, because he and dad were close mm -hmm. and on the same page all the time in the business. And um, he said, if only, if only he had approached me, I would have I found a way to buy it's the winery. And he would have because yeah. that's who he was, yeah. you know. <laughs> he started Robert Mondavi with uh, two yeah. $25,000 um, loans, loans from friends, you right. know. And then going to the bank and saying, look, look I have I, all this backing I, I, and I, I want you to back me even more. And they did. <laughs> I never knew that story. Yeah. So you're devastated um, and you're living in the city. What, what was it like for Inglenook from where you stood? Did, did, it, did quality suffer greatly? It was, it was bought by uh, United Vintners, correct? That's right. Initial purchase. So United Vintners was a cooperative, and then okay. as time went on, it was purchased by the parent company of Hublin. Hublin bought it, okay. And, um, you know, it was basically over. And right. so there was, I just didn't follow it that closely. And for my dad, it was a classic situation where he had been, um, uh, they had said, of course, we want you to stay on for a period of three sure. years. And um, it just got ugly so fast, mm -hmm. you know, that things were being done without his, without his um, involvement in any way. And it affected, you know, his, his position. Mm -hmm. And so that fell apart very quickly. It was a very heartbreaking situation. And then, I don't know if you recall this, I'm sure you will when I mention it, but um, when the whole thrust for the Ag Preserve started, right. um, it came on quite suddenly. The Board of Supervisors probably had been working on it for months, but there was not broad awareness of it in the mm -hmm. community. And so it was launched, and my dad said, well, you know, so I see this as a land reform. And he had been a great champion of, of the little growers right. for years and years and had been um, active in working with them, um, in standing up for them against the last-minute purchases of Gallo coming in, you mm -hmm. know, and saying, okay, we'll buy them for right. not right. so much. So 
<clears throat> very fine company, by the way, obviously, but um, so he so he fought it. He fought it diligently. He had my dad huh. was a real record keeper, and there were no computers, obviously, at that time. And I know that he had an entire four drawer cabinet filled with correspondence and efforts to try and write the write the cart. Got it. And you know, today and long ago, I had a different opinion, and know that the egg preserve is of. In, uh, in inestimable importance to us here. Yes, then but, and but, now. At, but at the time, it was very controversial, and it both was. and both sides had valid points. I mean, it was true. However, um, a bad thing happened, and so when I see controversies come up today, Doug, between uh, you know groups that have mm-hmm. passionate feelings and other groups that oppose those feelings, I feel very concerned. And I feel concerned because what happened to my dad was horrendous. And um, people stopped talking to him. Mm. His friends stopped communicating with him. And he was asked to uh, resign from the Napa Valley Vintners. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Heartbreaking. And so heartbreaking that indeed, you know, in 1970, he committed suicide. Mm -hmm. He had a nervous breakdown and that was it. So, (laughs) and the funny part about that, if there is a funny part about that, is that when I was a young woman, um, I was not allowed to see, date, anyone who had a history of suicide in their family because my father felt it was a genetic <laughs> a oh genetic oh no. issue. Oh wow. So oh. <laughs> and you're and and you're what are you're like 30. I you're was 30. 30. Yeah. yeah. And you're and so green, honestly. Yeah, you're 30 so green. and you're green and you're living in San Francisco. Yeah. This not, not for long. This was so. devastating. Yeah. Um living in Mill Valley. How did actually. you uh, how did you pull yourself together? How'd you do that? Well, bad things happened, Doug. Yeah. There were a lot of bad things that happened, and my dad changed his will the day before he died. Huh. Um, <clears throat> again, guilt, I think. Sure. He knew he was going to do it. And put me. And I had been working with, with him for a year. I had been commuting up to the ranch, and um, he was now training me to be his boy. Oh, okay. His boy that would, would take over. And save everything. And the constant comment was, save everything. Because he still had land. Oh, okay. a lot okay. of land. Okay, because he, 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 sold, he, sold, he sold the he winery. He sold the front, the front um, part of the winery in 90 acres. So there was still okay. a lot of so land. Still a lot and of land. Napanook. Okay. And the property where Got it. <clears throat> Opus is today. And, and, and. So there was a lot. And he, he effectively tied my hands in a bow knot when he, when he rewrote his will. Hmm. And so there was a lot of selling and a lot of um, just stuff. Yeah. So to be honest with you, I had a very bitter, very bitter two years and a real battle, internal battle with my mother. Mm-hmm. And um, my mother was a very strong woman and she clearly had some issues but nonetheless you know that it was a very very difficult time and I must say I didn't do very well I didn't I tried hard but I just didn't do very well and so 
then at some point you, you sit up in your bed and you say, wait a minute. Okay, who are you harming with this kind of bitterness? You know, mm. it's just one person, hello, it's me. <laughs> and so I just stopped. I just stopped being bitter. And I thought, okay, here we are. Let's go on. <laughs> and I love so much that quote from Henry Ford, which which is attributed to Henry Ford. But if you go after it, it may be, who knows, someone else. And it is, whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. And so hmm. Hmm. Um, <laughs> things, things happened, and it, w- it was bumpy. Sure. It was bumpy, and I um, was hired. We moved back to Napa Valley in 1972. John went to work for Oakville Vineyards. Oh, John, John, your husband. John, my husband, yes. Great from, guy. From um, 1966, and okay. now we're in 1972, and we That's... have two little children, okay. Aaron and Shannon. And John goes to work for the people who have, my mother has sold, <laughs> sold my ranch, <laughs> my ranch, <laughs> you know, in my little heart. Sure. Where you to, grew up. Yes. The people that bought it hired John, John. as a vice president of marketing, and they had 400 limited partners in oh Oakville Vineyards. And so I became the person who was giving guided tours through my home. Through the home, to, you, grew, the home you grew up in. My home. Oh, no. And when the phone would ring, I would think, I've got to answer the phone. Excuse me, I have to. No, oh, not my not, phone. Not your, it's not your phone. <laughs> so, you know, that was kind of part of the bumpy part. And I went to work. Um, I was hired by the board of, um, of directors for a brand new volunteer center here in Napa County. And I became the executive director of the board of directors. Okay. I mean, excuse me, of the, of the volunteer center. Okay. And I started with a one-time, um, one-year $19,000 grant. <laughs> so that was quite an experience. And in 1977, I had built a core of um, 10,000 volunteers, and we were working with 250 private and public NGOs. Okay. Uh, well, private NGOs and public agencies. And... Um, <laughs> I was having chest pains. And about that time, Robert Gerald Mondavi came to see me. He said, come and have lunch. And then he said, I'd like you to come to work for me as my secretary. And this, I said... This Robert Mondavi yes. called you up. Who so, you, you had known for your whole life, basically. Since I was four. Okay. And I said, well, Bob, thank you so much, but I can't do that. I am, I am an executive. And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, I'm the executive director of the Volunteer Center. And he said, well, that's just lovely. So I went right to work for Robert Gerald Mondavi, who became Mr. Mondavi overnight. <laughs> well, no, you were, because I remember when I was working there in 79, you started in 77, right? Yes, exactly. No, yeah. you walked by, because I was just there for a couple of months in the summer, but the, the full-time tour guys were like, right. oh, there goes Robin. She's like, you know, she's she's like Robert's right hand. In other words, she knows she knows everything. So she's, <laughs> she's the one. So it was this an epiphany number two. Um, I didn't realize until just a year ago that I really think what happened was that Robert Mondavi said, "Look, what's this? What's this person, daughter of John Daniel, doing? She's working in a volunteer center." She needs to go back into the wine business. Hmm. She needs to pick up the pieces and carry on. I'm, I'm sure that was the driving force. And because hmm. he didn't need Robin Lale, who was just 
obstreperous and full of fun and all that kind of thing, working as his secretary. But that's exactly what happened. I went to work there, and it was a training period, five years of training. And it was fabulous. So, yes, I was the secretary, Absolutely. Oh, but, but that's, that's we right. We went when, to lunch, you that's know. That's right, when that we, place was We would go to off. lunch, and there yeah. he would order five bottles of wine for the two mm-hmm. of us. And then he would look at me and say, I want you to tell me what you find in each of these wines. One of them was sure. all, always a Robert Mondavi. And Margaret taught me early on that you always say, but your wine is the, mo- <laughs> 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 your wine is the, mo- <laughs> the most spectacular. So, but the influence of both Bob and Margaret... Um, you know, I got I got the opportunity to to start to found sure. the first auction Napa Valley. Right, I wanted to talk to you about that. So yeah. the first, for those of you who don't know, auction Napa Valley is used to call it the Napa, Napa Valley, Valley auction. Wine now auction. it's auction Napa, yeah. Napa Valley, and it uh, was started in 1981. And Robin was going to tell us what happened because she organized it. But it's been going over. This will be the 40th year, and they've raised over 190 million dollars for charity in this valley. So what's the story behind the auction? How did that happen? The story behind the auction is is pretty interesting, actually. Robert Mondavi had been recruited by the St. Helena Hospital um, to do a capital campaign of $7 million. And I know you can't possibly know, but at that time, there were not very many vintners still in the valley. And $7 million was a lot of money, really a lot of money. And so many of the vintners that were extant at the time, you know, were running pretty close to the the hip. Mm -hmm. So this was not an easy deal. And so we put together a list of, um, as you always do in a capital campaign, a list of the potential primary large donors. And one of them was a, a woman named Pat Montandon, who mm-hmm. was quite a figure um, in San Francisco socially and was married to Elle Wilsey. And um, so we invited her to lunch. And um, that was n- not really me, but it was Robert Mondavi and Margaret. And I was at the, l- the luncheon table, the mm-hmm. secretary, to take mental notes. So Pat came to lunch, and as fate would have it, she had given a very large party the previous year and at their, at their home, which was a beautiful home um, on the Rutherford Crossroad. And a lot of people had become very annoyed because they were not invited to this party. And there was a big splash <laughs> in the newspapers about it, and it was not sort of something that was hidden in any way. So That's she funny. wanted to give another party, but she already had this part, you know, this problem because it, she was not everybody's favorite right at that moment. So she arrived at lunch with an agenda, and we certainly had an agenda. And her agenda was, she said, what I'd like to do is host an auction for the Napa Valley Vintners. And Margaret Mondavi said, oh my goodness, it could be like the... Oh, Ospice de Bone, mm-hmm. and the Ospice de Bone, as you know so well, Doug, is the only extant wine auction which had been going mm-hmm. on, I believe, since 1700 in Burgundy. Mm-hmm. There were no wine auctions sure. except the Ospice de Bone. So Burgundy, France. Margaret just pegged it right away. She said, and Robert, 
Mr. Mondavi at the time, <laughs> said, Robin, this is the exact kind of um, thing that your father and I looked for, have looked for for so many years that really could be an event that could promote the Napa Valley Appalachian and do good at the same time. And that was the beginning. And he said, and it's all yours, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, but no, absolutely no, he certainly did not. Okay. So now uh, it was going to be at the Willsies. So um, we had a meeting at the Willsies, and um, there was a very, <laughs> <laughs> I went to the meeting, and there was a very large day bed in this um, kitchen area, which is where all the vintners came. And we had this meeting with Pat Montendon. And the meeting was so intense, and I got so nervous, and skirts were very short at the time, very, very short. And I scoochied way back up against the back of this daybed, and there was a lot of daybed in front of me. And at some point in time, I had to get off it. <laughs> and it was no, no mean feat to keep the dress down keep the and dress get, off. get off it. <laughs> at any rate. So... Um, Time went on. The vintners agreed to do an auction. They were very cautious about the idea. And um, it became apparent that it just really wasn't going to work out too well to have it at a private home. Right. And so we moved to the next square, and the next square became Meadowood. So what happened was that Bob and Margaret were traveling a great deal at the time, and this was in 1979 that right. we decided we were going to do this. And the launch date was 1981. Mm -hmm. And so time went on, time went on. I started to get really <laughs> concerned that nothing was being done, you know. And so I finally said, would you mind if I get started here? And so, no, they wouldn't mind. And so I put together a, a committee of people that was so remarkable and the participants on this committee primarily were wives of vintners, brilliant women, um, or growers. So Martha May and Lila Yeager and Margaret Mondavi, not mm -hmm. surprisingly, and Priscilla Upton, and, 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 and people who were these women who had done all the... There were no, there were no restaurants to speak of. There was That's the right. Grapevine <clears throat> Inn. So... These women were the great entertainers, you know, for their husbands in building their businesses. Mm -hmm. And they were fabulous, yeah. all so bright and so marvelous. And, and then in addition to this fabulous group of women, there was Bill Harlan and Peter Palmasano and Herb Schmidt. And so it, that was basically our working group. And we, we built this auction from scratch. And it was a very exciting process. Um, in 1980, um, Bill Harlan and John and uh, I and Bill's um, date went to Bordeaux, and but the purpose of the oh, trip was them. really to go to Burgundy, Got it. to go to the Hospice de Bonne to see what was going on. So from the beginning, the idea behind Auction Napa Valley was um, threefold. It was to produce um, monies to help. The, the first auctions were just in support of medical. So it was just the two hospitals, right, the, the Queen of the Valley and the St. Lena Hospital, and then Clinical Lay, and now it's a completely different thrust. 
which is um, children's health care and wellness mm -hmm. and education. The purpose of the auction originally was to raise money for philanthropy within the community, um, to integrate the community with the vintners, to be to bring us together with the people of the valley is very, very important, and um, to do so in a really positive way. And um, the last and um, not least was to promote Napa Valley. Sure, it's uh, um, it's it's just been a big win it's on, been a big on win. all those counts. Yeah. And and thank you very much for getting it going, because I uh, loved I love Mr. Mandavi, but boy, he's tough to he was tough to tie down in those days. So someone had to get that. Well, and we do had the work. we had a committee. I should not <laughs> um, miss the committee, and the the chairman of the committee was Louis Martini. Junior and uh, no Louis, which is it? Yeah, Louis, Louis L. Uh, there's an initial there. There's it was a, the younger uh, Louis Martini and uh, Chuck Carpy. Yeah, great guys. So they they were great too. So after uh, a few years with Mandavi, you you kind of continued to get back into the wine business in a big way, and you met a guy named Christian Moex. Tell I me did. about that. Who's that guy? So that introduction was made by. Bob Mandavi. Okay. And um, Christian Moex is a, a fascinating person. Um, we first met in um, December of 1981, and then we co-founded Dominus in May of 1982 with my sister, um, Marky. And it was a venture that uh, lasted until 1995. It was um, a venture that had, for me, just Robin by myself in my little room, I thought it was the opportunity to st start again, yeah. to rekindle this legacy, but to bring it into the 21st century in a brand new way. Hmm. You know, and uh, for Christian, the same, you know, coming from from um, Saint Emilion, I'm sorry, from Pomerol and Saint Emilion, and uh, his uh, amazing reputation there, um, and the fabulous wine. Sure. You know, obviously, he was champion of Petrus at the time, and and also the director. So I just thought, and Portina other Chateau, by the way, but yes. um, I just thought that this could be a, a merger that would create a brand new excitement um, with with great legacies on both sides. And unfortunately, that was, I believe, not um, uh, Christian's um, view. I hmm. think that perhaps he, from the out outset, was interested in um, a vineyard, you know, that sure. he, he had looked before and couldn't find anything. And so um, he was interested in perhaps taking over the vineyard. So it was a very, very interesting um, venture. I learned a great deal, Doug. I am very, um, I admire Christian's um, capabilities enormously and um, really value the interactions that I had at the time and um, the opportunity. And, um, you know, basically... When I emerged from that from that joint venture uh, or partnership, um, I came out with um, 
two and a half acres of Merlot across the street from from Napanook. Napanook in Yalfield. And mm-hmm. um, and um, a knowledge that if I was ever going to start over, <clears throat> it had to be now with the two and a half acres of Merlot. That was right. 1995. And I was 55 years old. And what's interesting about that age at that time is, <laughs> is that uh, that when my dad sold Inglenook, he was 55 years old. Oh, really? So, yes. Okay. And that's when you started. You started. That was that's when Lael Vineyard started. That's when Lael Vineyard started. Yes. But I'm going to jump back on you. Before that, you had a little gig with Mr. Harlan. I did. Oh, tell me about that one. That was, so that was, that, that was um, much more interactive, if you would say. Good. Um, and it's such an education. Of course. I so bet. Bill is such an important figure in my life um, hmm. in terms of. What would we call it? An apprenticeship, I suppose. Okay. I mean, it was never presented that way. But I started out as his secretary. Okay. I went to work. I went to work for Bill in um, 1982 mm-hmm. in San Francisco. Oh. Okay. And then um, we moved back to Meadowood in 1985. But we started um, Lale Vineyards. I'm sorry. Excuse me. I'm have one track mind. Lale, Lale, Lale. We started Maryvale Vineyards in um, 1983. And when I say we, that partnership was composed of John and Robin, um, Bill Harlan, and his partners at Pacific Union, Peter Stocker, That's and right. John Montgomery. Right. But in terms of activity, basically, um, Bill and I were kind of on the operations operation line. And so what did I learn from Bill? I learned, what did I learn from Robert Mondavi? So much, in both cases, so much. And Bill was not an easy man to work for. Um, He was a man who was interested in what was wrong versus what was right. My my favorite story is the story of Bill playing tennis with our tennis pro at Meadowood, Doug mm-hmm. King, and um, <laughs> Doug saying, "Oh, way to hit the ball, Bill! Go, way to hit through that ball! Oh, that looks really good!" And Bill puts down his tennis racket and approaches the net, and um, <laughs> Doug's. Just (laughs) what's going to happen now and approaches the net. And Bill leans forward and says to him, you know, Doug, I'm not interested in what I'm doing right. I'm interested in what I'm doing wrong. And so I think that that was at that time, you know, and that was we had a long go together, um, kind of a driving force. Yeah, It was always the pursuit of excellence. It was mm-hmm. the pursuit of the highest degree of excellence, not just kind of good old, good old. Yeah. No, it had to be top of the heap. It had mm-hmm. to be beyond the next level, the next level. So the drive for excellence really suited me. Sure. The challenge suited me, but it was, it was, a, it was hard, but I'm so grateful. Sure. So I think that Bill, well, I know Bill's responsible for me being where I am today. Well, look at the education you've had, you know, and then, and then finally, I mean, you the, finally get to put it all together. 
well, in 1995 start but it your own thing? It wouldn't have happened because, mind you, I went to work for him as his secretary. Mm-hmm. But in 1985, I became managing director of Meadowood because there was none right at the time, and we were working at Meadowood to go to the next level. Big jump. That's right. To I be remember a, that. To be yeah. an international destination, um, resort, resort destination mm-hmm. of the highest I order. I remember those years when they and did everything. Yeah. So, you know, and uh, then, of course, Maryvale was still going, and then he 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 bought Sunny St. Helena Winery right. with me saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. <laughs> but he did it. And then I became president of Maryvale. And um, there's yeah. a lot going on. And none of that would have happened if he hadn't been propelling me to try and help me be all I could be. So he's a very interesting man. He's a man who plays the long game. He's a man who's very interested in what other people's opinions are, even if he has a very clear opinion himself, which has been under development for a series of for a long wow. period of time. And um, he listens and then he evaluates and moves forward. Mm-hmm. But he's very patient. He's very patient. If you look at the Napa Valley Reserve, that was a project that probably took, oh, at least 10 years. To put into, into into being, so I love that. I love um, his attention to detail. He's an outstanding editor, outstanding negotiator, and an outstanding builder of character. Hmm. You know that you cannot survive in that kind of a of a, a organization. Without some temerity and some sure. some ambition and some desire and you know things that carry you over the little bumps along the way, he is a very valuable person in my life. Fantastic. I'm very grateful of my association. Yeah. Fantastic. So, so yeah. you were working with him for what 10, 12 years, something like that. Yes. And then. Finally, we get to Leo Finally, Vineyards, yes. the origin. Tell me about Leo Vineyards. It was 1995. Well, you, you know, Doug, I was terrified from starting over. I think we've gone way over time. Are we way no, over we're time fine. We got, we got all day. We go all week. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I had always been afraid of trying to start over. Mm-hmm. You know, I did not have... 17, 1800 acres of land. Sure. I did not have a winery built in 1883. I did not have um, a, a lovely Victorian mansion with four acres of garden. Mm. I, I had no there there. Right. And by the way, um, when I started, I had two and a half acres of grapes and no capital. But uh, that's yeah. scary. That's oh, scary. it's very scary. <laughs> <laughs> it's lunatic is what it is. <laughs> but it was very apparent to me that if I didn't try, you know, it was just all going to go away right. for sure. And so we started with nothing. And um, it's been a very interesting path. Uh, for for a long time, can you imagine? Um, for a long time, I also started 
pretty simultaneously a company called Connections. Okay. And Connections uh, was in the business of entertaining um, influential uh, influencers and changers throughout the country. Hmm. Um, people who would who would stand behind us should prohibition the prohibitionists be effective in coming back again. People that would come to um, bolster the wine business. And I started Connections because I wanted so very much to make a mark, some kind of a mark for the vintners to replicate what my dad had done. And you know what I never figured out, Hmm. Doug, was that at the time I started doing that, there were a lot of vintners. (laughs) There were a lot. There were not nine vintners. There were a whole lot because there had been this huge uptick in the 80s and 90s, which continues today. Right. But so to be of some importance was not going to be easy. So this this company was to arrange extraordinary visits to Napa Valley for people in positions of power and influence. And um, I spent 10 years doing that. And so that basically... And then there was a woman, I don't know if you ever crossed paths with her, she's a marvelous woman named Katie Spann. No, I don't know her. And Katie Spann was a powerhouse who was very successful in business and a very good friend of mine. And so now Lale Vineyards is creeping along (laughs) (laughs) simultaneously to this other business that is taking absolutely every moment of my time. Oh, is it? That's Oh, yes. That's great. Right out of the starting gate. And... um, but just, and she finally said to me, Robin, what are you doing? This is ridiculous. You know, <laughs> your heritage lies here in Lale Vineyards, and you're spending all your time over here not developing your Lale Vineyards. What are you doing? And so her point was well taken, you know, and I said, ah. I so don't I don't know if I agree. Where's your passion? Or is it? Or is it was it, a, is, is it was it, a passion for both. And exactly, so in what's the world wrong with having two passions? Because I love people. There you go. I mean, okay. Oh well, no, you can have two passions. Yeah, you but can have, if you can have more passion, than two. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I can have three. You can have three. I have to go now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad you've got them both. But tell me about the wines. Tell me what what kind of wines is Leo making these days. Lael's making six wines. Okay. We're making um, one, two, three, one, two, three, four Cabernet Sauvignons and two Sauvignon Blanc. Got it. And you've got your original vineyard, Naponook, and you bought another vineyard up on Howl Mountain? Um, we have our original vineyard, Totem, which okay. is across the street from Naponook and me. was originally yeah. a part of Naponook. But much more interestingly, frankly, um, Doug, when... Um, George Yant planted the first vineyard in 1839 in Napa Valley. Totem, the little two-and-a-half-acre property, um, sits on part of that original, the land where that original vineyard was. And so I was talking earlier about the soul of the valley. So I think there's some soul that comes out of that that depth of history. I'm a little... um, Perhaps silly that way, but um, I 
I feel that very strongly. So I think that's perfect. And that, you know, and everybody drives by that spot. When you come into the Napa Valley and you're on the Highway 29, it's four lanes and it chokes down to two lanes, right? Just north of Yonville. On your right, if you're heading north, is where Totem is. That's right. And, and that's where we grow the grapes for our single vineyard, um, Georgia Sauvignon Blanc. Got it. That's the one. That's my favorite. <laughs> oh, I love <laughs> tell, it. And you've got a couple, but tell me about Blueprint, because you've got a couple wines named Blueprint, right? So we do have a couple of wines named Blueprint. So when we got into the business, nothing would do but that I try to make wines of the highest quality. You know, it's called Chasing Schaefer. <laughs> oh, stop. We'll stop that right now. <laughs> so um, we've worked on that long and hard, and we've been very lucky and uh, very lucky with the critics. Very lucky. Mm -hmm. So, but it's very important to um, generate younger people coming into your business. And right. so that was the reason for starting to make Blueprint wines. We make a Blueprint Cabernet and a Blueprint Sauvignon Blanc. And originally the wines were called Blueprint in honor of my husband, John Lale, who is an architect who has designed over 50 wineries here in Napa Valley and done a huge number of wine caves as well. He's done that many wine. I didn't he know has. he had he over has. 50. Wow. So lovely to salute that. Those mm -hmm. will probably last longer than the wines we're making, although I'm not sure. <laughs> um However, uh, last year we uh, moved forward with the Blueprint Wines, and the Blueprint Wines are wines meant to be of great value. Um, retail pricing is um, modest. I think mm -hmm. it's $80 for the Cabernet and uh, $40 for the Sauvignon Blanc, and they're great value wines. Super. So you get a lot more for your buck than um, yeah. what the price tag says. But... Um, and again, of, of great interest is that we found that these wines, which we were originally directing at a younger audience, um, have vertical appeal. So that's Super. very exciting. That's so great. I find them on the counters of friends of mine in the wine business, which mm -hmm. is a great salute. I love that. And now you have two in your own cellar. Thank you very much. <laughs> because by I the brought way. them I here know. today. Thank you. <laughs> Thank but um, just recently, we have changed the direction of the Blueprint wines, or at least the the reason behind them. And um, I personally and my staff are uh, real believers that we're living in a climate crisis mm -hmm. that is of great magnitude. And I recently was appointed as the United States representative of the Porto Protocol. I was going to ask you about that. That's congratulations. That's really cool. Thank you. Tell Thank me about. You. Can you tell me about that? You're, yes, you're I can. The, yes, I can. Yeah. So the Porto Protocol was founded in Porto, Portugal, mm -hmm. in July of 2018, um, and it was founded by Adrian Bridge, who is the CEO of Taylor Flatgate, right, in Portugal. And uh, the keynote speaker of the first conference, it was a conference that started the initiative, uh, was Barack Obama. And the idea is this is an initi initiative that is principally directed towards um, vintners and growers. And the idea is to drive people to become members and 
as part of your membership, your requirements are pretty little. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a letter of principles you have to sign, which is pretty simple. And then you agree to take action and um, upgrade what you're doing. Yeah. It can be in a small way or a very big way. It mm-hmm. doesn't matter just to take action, take action to move forward, to modify your carbon footprint on the planet Earth. And the agricultural business is, um, particularly the wine business, is very well geared to that. Um, vineyards sequester carbon dioxide, but mm-hmm. there are many things that we can do in our vineyards that improve that even more. Um Wineries generate a lot of carbon dioxide, and so um, very often um, vintners believe that they have carbon credits coming from sure. the from the <laughs> vineyard to counterbalance their carbon dioxide production, which is true. But you know, it, it's a time for us to be looking about really seriously about what we're doing and how we're doing mm-hmm. it, and and to. Again, to take action, it's pretty simple. And the idea for me, my primary excitement is to um, attempt to generate as many members as I can, not only for the impact on the footprint that they're making, but also to build a loud voice. And I remember very well, you know, I recently went to a, a, a climate conference and Jerry Brown was speaking and He said something that was so obvious, but so succinct. And it was that if you want politicians um, to come to your side uh, in regards to anything you're doing, he said it's important to create a loud voice. And he said then they will come. And they will come because their primary interest generally is in keeping their seat. That's their basic interest. Mm -hmm. So pleasing the people. I'd have to to agree with that. (laughs) So... um, then, I'm I'm okay. very excited. Um, the Napa Valley Vintners have joined the protocol, mm-hmm. and in addition to that, we have um, a number of other people here in the valley. And um, this is a global effort, and uh, I think we're going to do some make do some good. So we're not going to create. You know, whenever you talk to people about the climate crisis, Doug, what happens is that people immediately shut down. Mm-hmm. It's too vast. It's too uncontrollable. Right. It's what, too far gone. It's too all these right. things. And what can I do? Yeah. And the fact of the matter is that we can all do something. But because it's so vast, people usually go to the door marked. Those other people have to do it. The big well, people have to sure. do it. The really big people. Mm-hmm. And it's true. The yeah. really big people do have to do it. But... All of us, all of us, need to pay attention and yeah. and lean into it. I think, and and your your sales of blueprint wines, I think so, there's a, a percentage goes to climate change. Yes, it does. So now, ten percent of our of our uh, online sales um, go to an organization that's deep in the fight against climate change. Good for you. That's Thank really you. great. Thank you. It's very, you know, I wish it could be much faster. Well, it's, you know, you got to take one step at a time. Got to start. And you started. So hats off to you. Thank you. Thank so you. if people want to find Lale Vineyards Wines, where do they go? Well, I think the best place for them to go, <laughs> frankly, is to Lale Vineyards. 
um, either by telephone okay. and speak to Chantal, who is our direct-to-consumer individual, or to our website, okay. um, which is www.lailvineyards.com. Great. Good. And we'd love to have you come, by the yes, way. Yes, <laughs> check out the, the Cabernets are fantastic, and the Sauvignon Blanc is my favorite. So, Robin, thank you so much for being here. This has been fantastic. Thanks for getting me all that historical information right. It's uh, quite a story. Oh, Doug, it's been so much fun to talk to you. I knew it would be, <laughs> and I go away just clapping my hands. Thank you. You're great to work with. I loved it. Thanks for your time. Thank you. What an amazing story. Robin is someone who's been through a lot and come out on top. She's warm, funny, insightful, and Lael Vineyards makes some gorgeous wines. It's the rare person who can start over time after time and do it with such style and grace. Do yourself a favor and check out her wines. If you enjoy listening to The Taste, please do us a favor and rate and review it on iTunes. Doing so helps other people find the podcast. If you'd like to get in touch, please send an email to podcast at schafervineyards.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.